0: Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast, where we're talking all things film and screen culture. We record on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and we acknowledge their elders past, present, and emerging. Welcome to our second podcast for the year. Thanks to COVID, we're recording outside of our usual studio, but we won't let that stop us. My name is Alexia Canis, I'm a writer and film scholar, and I'll be introducing our segments this month. In this episode, writer, academic, and programmer Kirsten Stevens joins cinema and TV scholar Joime Baker and Melbourne University lecturer Janice Lorick to discuss two westerns that are currently streaming News of the World, directed by Paul Greengrass and First Cow, directed by Kelly Reichardt. Later, Kirsten talks with screen historian Stephen Gonson and Olympia Barron from the AFI Research Collection on the 50th anniversary of Nicholas Roeg's Walkabout and Ted Kotcheff's Wake in Fright. Joy me speaks with Adrian Danks, curator of Melbourne Cinematheque, and Senses of Cinema editor Michelle Carey brings us a postcard from Paris. To wrap things up, we'll give our recommendations on what we've been watching over the previous month. Let's get on with the show.
1: Our two films this week are News of the World, directed by Paul Greengrass, and First Cow, directed by Kelly Reichardt. News of the World reunites director Paul Greengrass and Tom Hanks, who worked together in the 2013 Captain Phillips. Hanks plays Captain Kidd, formerly of the Confederate Army, who makes a living after the Civil War by travelling from town to town and reading newspapers to the townsfolk, most of whom we assume to be illiterate. One day he comes across a lynched black man and discovers a little girl who'd been in his care, played by Helena Zengel. The child is known as Johanna to her German migrant family, but a cicada to the Kiowa Native Americans who killed her family and raised her as their own. Johanna is orphaned once again when her Kiowa family are killed, and Captain Kidd finds himself burdened with returning the child to her remaining German family. A Western road movie entails with the pair having to deal with the threat of pedophiles and corrupt businessmen along the way. Janice, what did you think of News of the World?
2: Well, I think this is your very entertaining popcorn Western movie, I think. Um, Watching it, I initially thought this is going to be all about Tom Hanks, this is going to be about... America's dad and being able to watch him be a very moral and decent man for 90 minutes or however long the movie goes for And that's pretty much exactly what it was Uh, I do think it's quite interesting to see these sorts of movies being made because of course there's a long history of different Western Narratives and storylines and tropes for example, you know that of the of the kidnapped white child which has references to the searchers of course also the young girl making her way in the west which is very much that true grit reference again and so I think if you're if you know the western and you know these stories and this genre it can be really interesting to see what contemporary directors do with it I think much of this is what we've probably seen before but Paul Greengrass is such a such a visceral action director. He can generally spin a tale really well in an entertaining way. And there's some really great sequences in this movie. And frankly, you know, I just let myself be entertained by it. Is that how you felt about it too, Joy-me?
1: Yes, look, I... I... Did appreciate those references to The Searchers and True Grit. Uh, it is a bit of a popcorn Western. It, it it tries to go for gravitas in a few places and I, I'm not sure that it entirely succeeds on those fronts. And I think part of that is because of Tom Hanks' star persona. It's very different to John Wayne, who was featured in both those films that you mentioned. Um as you say, he's kind of a lovable dad. So even though he's given this tragic backstory to kind of give him some grit and this idea that he's a reluctant father figure, we know that he is going to be eventually a very eager father figure. So that reluctance on his part never quite rang true for me. But as you say, it is an enjoyable kind of Western road movie um, as it happens. I don't necessarily think that it had enough gravitas to have a lasting impact on me in terms of the Western oeuvre. What did you think, Kirsten?
3: I'm really surprised that you both described it as a popcorn. I mean, I understand where you're coming from with that, but for a director like Greg Russ, I was expecting those action sequences to be far more gripping and far more exciting than they were. I found the whole thing a bit boring. Um, I was surprised at... The fact that everything that happened was so very predictable and there didn't seem to be many twists and turns to getting to where you knew the film was going from the very beginning, from that moment that Hanks found um, Johanna, you knew what the outcome was going to be and there was really nothing that surprised along the way. And certainly in that idea of the newsreader um, travelling around the West, I found that a far more captivating idea that just was more of a backdrop device in the film and it wasn't really played up. You had that one really pivotal scene where he was able to turn the crowd by reading a story that kind of came out of nowhere because he didn't seem to have such a massive effect on the other crowds that he read to and there was nothing particularly in his reading that made you think that he had that power to captivate a crowd and so it was just... I don't know, there were elements of this film that I thought perhaps relied too heavily on an audience's pre-knowledge of the genre and didn't really do enough to, I think, suggest that to me in the filmmaking itself. I think this is going to make an interesting
1: contrast with our discussion of our second film, which is Kelly Reichardt's first Cow, which I think is definitely not a conventional Western um, so, this is Reichhardt's second foray into the Western genre after Meek's Cutoff from 2010, which was also set in 19th century Oregon. But the feel of the two films is quite different, whereas Meek's Cutoff was set in the desert, so a lot of emphasis on heat and thirst. First Cow was set in the drizzle and mud of the Pacific Northwest forests. Here we have Otis Cookie Figowitz, played by John Margaro, a trained baker with little outlet for his skills. And he meets King Lu, played by Orion Lee, a Chinese immigrant. And together they team up to provide baked goods, stealing milk from the first cow of the region, owned by Chief Factor, played by Toby Jones. Um, Kirsten, what did you think of First Cow in comparison with News of the
3: World? Well, I saw First Cow quite a bit before News of the World, and I think the um, News of the World suffered for that fact. I encountered First Cow as the opening night film for the Melbourne International Film Festival back in the middle of uh, 2020. And my experience of the film there, I think was really informed by the watching conditions. And I would say the same is true for News of the World. Uh, both of these are films that I've watched streaming that I think probably both would have benefited from um, a cinematic Uh, exposure but certainly Kelly Reichardt's First Cow was a film that I think stood up even in uh, that kind of streaming mode far better. I did find it incredibly hard uh, sitting through this film I loved it I have to say that I absolutely loved this film but its slow pace and watching it on my television was not something that I think I was quite prepared for. Um, And I missed that cinematic experience of opening night of a film festival and sitting in a cinema and getting to experience the film that way. Um, That said, you know, it does draw you in this film. Uh, It is a captivating story uh, about these two people within the, the sort of frontier and that use of milk as a, as a way of sort of harking back to a, um, a more civilised um, memory of, rather than sort of this very frontier society that we're looking at. And the clever way that Reichardt uses the milk and the access to the cow um, to really kind of play out a whole range of different um, class and market and uh, inter-social kind of uh, dynamics. Janice, what did you think of the film?
2: I mean, I think that First Cow and News of the World are so different. I think certainly they both are Westerns and in that they are about the frontier during the 19th century America. But the similarities don't go particularly far because for one thing, News of the World is, is about a journey. It's about action. Um, whereas First Cow is about two people who come together Um, Cookie and King Lou so these two characters who meet in Oregon and who decide to go into business together um, selling what they call oily cakes which are basically I guess like donuts or something like that yeah something like that Um, they're sort of fried in lard. you know they look they look delicious but they have to steal uh, milk in order to make it Um, so I do think that they're very different I think the thing that connects them perhaps is that they are about Family and community and survival um, in those conditions, and how to do that when you are in such an aggressive environment. And so they approach that very differently. I think I do love First Cow, though. It's a it's a beautiful film, and I think what really carries the movie is the relationship between the two main characters. For one thing, it's sort of like a, a partnership between two gentle souls. You know, one is a bit more kind of enterprising. The other one perhaps has had a bit of the spirit kicked out of him a little bit, but they come together and they, and they work out what they're good at and how they're actually going to survive in this community. And what comes from that is this kind of very deep, moving and complex friendship. And I think the real pleasure of First Cow is, uh, is, is watching that and watching that unfold very gently on the screen. And so and I also enjoyed the bits with the cow. The cow itself is a beautiful vision in the movie. I just I loved the scenes where the cow was in it. <laughs> I don't well, know.
1: Well that's what I would say actually is that I love the relationship between Cookie and the cow. Um because this is like transactional. They're stealing the milk. And yet he takes the time to kind of ask her how she's feeling and empathize with her plights of losing her family and there's this lovely rapport develops between him and the cow. So the the cow becomes a character in her own right I think and there's something very lovely about that dynamic that takes on a life of its own.
2: Yes I know the the milking scenes are kind they're almost like asthma you know (laughs) when he's sort of asking her about and also there's a very interesting parallel for one thing I, I don't want to you know carry on too much about the cow but she's sort of this feminine presence in the movie (laughs) and he talks to her as if she's you know she's a real woman and uh, you know we we find out that her that the male cow has uh has died on the passage over as has her calf so she also becomes representative of of survival and the ways in which um the process of of Trying to survive in these environments is is really straining, and how very difficult it is. I do think First Cow is the better film amongst these two, in terms it it fulfills what it's trying to accomplish better. Uh, It's more thought provoking and moving, and more original. I would say I don't think I've seen many westerns that really hit this tone that this film achieves. Um, I'm not sure if you feel the same way, both of you, about it, but I just, it it, it didn't, it, it had a different emotional register to a lot of Westerns,
3: I thought. I completely agree with you, Janice. I think that First Cow offered us something that was really interesting in the Western genre. And I think in particular, when you're thinking about the fact that this is adapted, um from a a book um the half-life and taking from that a very particular um narrative uh so losing a lot of that far more adventurous and far more journeying kind of narrative that could have taken place and i guess is more typical of a lot of westerns um to focus in on this very in many ways a very static story within the west Um, It all takes place within a very small geographic area and it's the character's inability to sort of get out in time from this space that is ultimately their downfall. Um, I think it does tell a really interesting story in a really powerful way that we don't often see as opposed to news of the world, which just really was all of those generic um, tropes kind of stitched together. Jomi, how did you feel?
1: I agree. And and even though, you know, having watched Meek's Cut-Off, I I knew that Reichardt would not take necessarily all the expected genre tropes um, in, in this genre, at the same time this film still surprised me. And I really enjoyed that surprise and it's a very tight focus on this one little moment and this one little activity uh, in the West. And also the look and feel of the film, the fact that it has the, the squarer Academy ratio, um, the fact that it was in a very lush forest environment with all that mud, I felt quite chilly by the end of the film, which is a different kind of feel, I think, to the traditional Western and the, the dustiness and the heat. That we normally associate with the western so there was also a, a different kind of aesthetic and a, a different kind of um visceral feel to this film that i really enjoyed
2: yes and i think i think that first cow it really reminds you that there are so many other stories to tell i think about the american frontier and and that we don't necessarily need to return over and over to the kind of the, the stories that we've seen before. And also one thing that I was also thinking about in News of the World is that there did appear to be an attempt to speak to contemporary issues in the movie. I'm not sure if you guys picked up on that, but, you know, it's about a guy who goes around reading the news and at one point he's asked to read essentially a puff piece or some propaganda for a local oh gosh I, I don't know what you'd call him a, an entrepreneur who's basically uh, made himself the, uh, the leader of, of one of the settlements and, um, and he refuses to do it and no, he reads the real news and it becomes this pivotal moment in the film. And I, I, I kind of went, okay, yeah, this is about fake news and this is a little, a little nod to the contemporary moment about you know the value of, of news and and the ways in which news can be misused. And it just it seemed both it didn't quite make its point and it seemed a little bit on the nose. And it felt like an attempt to make, Western contemporary and relevant um, in a way that I don't think is necessary because you can see something like first cow and you're like well this is this seems fresh this seems like a new take on the Western um, that did not need to necessarily find those contemporary cultural touchstones I mean I can see that you're both nodding in agreement with it. so did you notice the kind of attempt to link it to the contemporary moment as well
3: yeah absolutely and not just through the fake news but I think through the victimhood of Johanna the fact that it was incredibly even-handed that you had um, her dual victimhood in terms of the um, her white family that had been killed by um, the Indians all with very good justification as the film made very clear to us repeatedly Um, you know the whites had gone and settled on their land and then the her Indian family was killed by white bandits all of that while it served a narrative device as well within the film it did seem incredibly um self-aware that oh no we're we're not we're not saying that you know violence happened on both sides it was a terrible time and they seem to be really determined to to make these points as well as the racial tensions (laughs) Um, that came through with the the lynching of the um, black man at the start, and the way in which that thread kept being raised throughout. I think, as with a lot of that film, it there I don't necessarily have a problem with films trying to do this, but News of the World was just a little bit clunky and a little heavy-handed in how it dealt with some of these um, issues. Join me. What did you think?
1: Yeah. Look, I agree, and I think it's interesting to think that. In a way, both of these are revisionist Westerns, but how they go about it is so completely different. Um, There's something a little bit by the numbers about News in the World and the way it tries to update its material. Um, Whereas, you know, when you think about uh, First Cow, the way that it deals with the idea of Chinese immigrants uh, on the frontier and settler society, it's there, but it's dealt with in a, a more subtle way than we get in News of the World. And we, I think part of that is because we actually get to know a character, right? It's not just a plot piece that's slotted in, um, you know, because we never actually, their they're cure in uh, News of the World, as much as great care is taken for even handedness, they're often a distance. They're not real people. We don't actually engage with them through a lived experience that we share with them um, and i think that for me that is the difference uh, whereas we get to know king lu not as just a chinese immigrant but as an individual right as, as a lived person
3: i think that's absolutely right join me and thinking about that you know it, it, there is something that is i think i find uncomfortable that in News of the World, our engagement with indigeneity and First Nations experiences through a white girl. And that, I think, is part of the problem, as you say, the by-the-numbers um, kind of approach.
2: You know, I was thinking about that, actually, because I, I wondered, there's not a moment where the Kiowa are on screen, talking, participating in the narrative. We see them, but... Um, They're not in the story, whereas Kelly Reichardt does, you, you know, use First Nation characters and have First Nations performers in her films. And I wondered about that. I thought, did they want to keep the First Nations people in News of the World kind of a shadowy presence, or was it just a case of not being confident to incorporate that point of view and that subjectivity in the movie i i don't know i think i think if they did want to keep them as a as a kind of an off-screen presence then it wasn't done for much gain i would argue Uh, whereas kelly reichardt shows that you can bring these characters on screen and have them you know with dialogue and speaking and with names (laughs) so i think i think again that's something that was a bit of a disappointment with, with News of the World and, and another reason why, even though at the beginning of, of this recording I did say that I enjoyed it, I think that there were many uh, ways in which it, it could have been better and could have been more complex as a Western, absolutely.
3: Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts as well on these two uh, Westerns. They're both streaming now on services around the world, so you can tune in and check them out. And come and leave your thoughts about these films on our socials at Senses of Cinema's Facebook page, Instagram or Twitter.
0: Next up, Kirsten Stevens talks with Olympia Barron from the AFI Research Collection and RMIT University Screen Historian Stephen Gonson about two pivotal Australian films that marked their fiftieth anniversaries this year: Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout and Ted Kotcheff's Wake in Fright. The Cannes International Film Festival in 1971
3: marked the premiere of two iconic films about Australia, English director Nicholas Roeg's Walkabout and Canadian Ted Kotcheff's Wake in Fright. The arrival of these films in the early 70s, right at the start of the decade that would come to be associated with the great Australian film revival, was significant. And despite neither film receiving a particularly popular reception with Australian audiences at the time, both have since entered into the canon of Australian cinema as seminal films. While both films present a vision of Australia from an outsider's perspective, they also work to capture the Australian landscape and psyche in unique ways that questioned and challenged the images, or indeed the lack thereof, of Australia that had graced screens up to that moment. May 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of the first appearance of both films and offers us a chance to reflect on the contribution they've made to half a century of Australian screen production and culture. To talk through these films, I am thrilled to be joined by Dr Stephen Gornsson, expert on Australian cinema and senior lecturer in media at RMIT University, and Olympia Barron, esteemed and exceptionally knowledgeable librarian at the Australian Film Institute Research Collection, which is housed at RMIT. Welcome, Steve and Olympia. To to kick off our discussion, Steve, I might throw this to you. It's been half a century since these films were released. What about them do you think still resonates all this time later?
4: Oh, boy. I mean, so much. I mean, they're both beautifully shot films. Um, you know, Walkabout was actually shot by its director, Nicholas Roeg. It was a very established um, DOP at the time, you know, he'd shot um, Fahrenheit 451 the Truffaut film, he'd shot his previous film performance um, and then you've got Wake and Fright You know, equally an, another brilliantly shot movie, but then there's also just the myth around both of these films, like why are these two films, these great Australian films which are now considered Australian classics why are they shunned by Australia at the time of their release? I mean both of them were Box Office flops, both of them were critical flops in Australia, even though outside of Australia, both films did really well. I mean, Roger Ebert, the um the US critic, he he was referred to Walkabout as one of the great movies. And he also really, really loved um Wake and Fright. So there's there's that sort of conversation as well of you know the, the Australian ugliness and the cultural cringe. And there was actually a campaign at the time of Wake and Fright to actually ban this film from getting outside of Australia because People didn't want that kind of vision of Australia being seen by people overseas thinking that, that that's how they would see um, all of Australians. So there's a number of things going on with the films, and they're both really kind of very deep and effective films in what, what they're trying to do. And, um, yeah, I think those, those things sort of continue those conversations. And then there's the whole history about Wake and Fright, how it was lost for a while. Um, you know, for many, many years, this film couldn't be seen because the master print, Master Negative, was actually lost. Um, so then uh, you know another myth was created around this film of um, you know how how disturbing is this film really, by people who couldn't see it. And then, of course, the film was refound and um, re-released. Um again, playing it at, at the Cannes Film Festival in I think two thousand and nine. Selected personally by Martin Scorsese, who loved the film. He saw it in 1971. He said it was the, one of the most disturbing films he's ever seen, which coming from Martin Scorsese is a pretty big statement considering <laughs> he's made some pretty disturbing films. Um, and if you've seen um, Casino, Martin Scorsese actually references Wake and Fright um, in Casino in, in some, um, some key shots at the start of the film.
3: Olympia, what are your memories of these films? How did you first encounter them?
5: Well, actually, with Wake and Fright, I only saw it with the reissue obviously I'm guessing a lot of people did but um, what I find interesting I guess with Walkabout in particular is now with the release of Rolpilil's documentary coming out and kind of looking at him and his career over that period of time and he's just beautiful in this film like it's it's quite yeah mesmerizing just how young and open and relaxed he is in front of the camera and i guess his journey um so i find that interesting in revisiting um a film like walkabout and Wake and fight man yes it still haunts me (laughs) it still absolutely haunts me um i can't think of anything off the top of my head that is coming to me right at this moment but um i guess it's funny because even though it's not about um, a, a coming of age, unlike Walkabout, I find that 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 um, the feelings that I have, that kind of sense of claustrophobia and peer group pressure, is the same feelings I get from that film. So yeah, it's interesting. I
3: think I think that's a really interesting association, and particularly when we think about these films as being um, made by people with outsider perspectives, Um, so Englishman, Canadian, and that idea of a coming of age, which really was the 1970s in Australia culturally. um, It was the first time we were really, particularly within cinema, starting to see ourselves and think about what Australia looked like. And I think both of these were, to an extent, a, a, a coming of age moment for us on screen, where, as you were saying before, Steve, It wasn't something that we instantly embraced. It wasn't, oh, we're finally seeing ourselves up on screen. It was more, oh, this is what the rest of the world is picturing us as and we're not okay with it. Um, And it is really interesting to think about how that factored into what happened throughout the 70s.
4: Yeah, apparently at the premiere of *Wake in Fright, an audience member yells at the screen, this isn't who we are, and Jack Thompson yelled back, it is who we are. Sit down and (laughs) shut up. (laughs) I hadn't
5: heard the Jack Thompson comeback. I've heard the other one. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, but
4: just on um, Olympia talking about Gopalil in in Walkabout. I think what's amazing about Walkabout it's a, it's sort of a, a three hander, isn't it? You know, just three central um, performances. Gopalil hadn't really done much acting beforehand. Um, there's uh, Luke Rogue, who's uh, Nicholas Rogue's son, young son, who you know he wasn't an actor. So Jenny Aguta was the only um, experienced actor in in the film, and but yet. Like Olympia was saying, it's it's beautiful. Like Gopalal is just amazing in this film. Um, and it's it sort of, you know, it launches just that amazing career that he's had. Probably the most um, ongoing and um, successful career of any Australian, really, if you think about, you know, what he's been able to do and the amount of seminal and important films that he's been a part of. Um, so, yeah, it, it is it is amazing to look back at such a young Gopalil um mm-hmm. And, you know, Jenny Aguda also was extremely young. And, I mean, she's gone on to star, you know, shows like Midsummer's Murder and um, Spooks and, you know, starring Call the Midwife and things like that. So, you know, as a document of history, it's really interesting to look back at, at these, these, both these films and just see, you know, all of those actors like, you know, Jack Thompson in Wake and Fright and, um, you know, Chips Rafferty's in Wake and Fright and things like that. So kind of the history of Australian actors in a way is kind of captured by both these films respectively.
3: I think it is really interesting to to think about these films as a moment in history and to think about, I mean, it is rather astounding to think that it's been 50 years now um, since they arrived. We we have seen half a century now of a revived Australian cinema. Do you think that these films have aged well or watching them as a contemporary audience, are there things that we we see now that... Uh, we've changed, perhaps, how we might depict.
4: Yeah, look, I think both both it's a good point. I mean, both these films, for me, hold up really, really well. I mean, they are both so effective. Like watching the kangaroo slaying sequence in Wake and Fright is still as harrowing and shocking today as it was at the time. And you know, it uses actual actual documentary footage, um, which was cut into the film.
3: Well, you say documentary footage. Um, I mean, I'm really glad that you raised that because I think one of the things around these films that for me has aged really noticeably is the treatment of animals. Um, So Walkabout was um, initially banned in the UK and then allowed because they decided that Gull hunting was actually so expert that the animals did not suffer. Um, But they were killed on screen. And as you mentioned, the um kangaroo hunting scene it was documentary footage but it was the director went out with a so-called professional kangaroo hunt um but a huge amount of the footage that he gathered from that hunt was discarded because the hunters got so drunk that by the end of the night they were wounding rather than killing the animals and this is sort of a level of um Treatment of animals that we've dramatically changed in terms of regulations around animal welfare and these kind of expectations. There is, I think, a, a brutality and a, um, rawness to some of these films that I don't know that we would see um, made in films today, purely because they were able to do things that we just would not do today.
4: Yeah, and I think, like, the root... The resequence sequence it, it needs to be in the film. You know, it would be too, it would be a bit of a cop-out. It would be too soft if that sequence wasn't in the film because what the film is, is really trying to show you is the ugliness of this community and how they are and how they behave and things like that. And it's interesting that Crocodile Dundee kind of references that sequence. Like it has its own drunk rue, midnight, killing sequence as well you know so that sort of it has continued on um in the history of of the cinema but yeah i mean i mean i've played this film to students and they're always like gasping at you know what's going on but and we kind of talk about that sequence well how would the film be different if that sequence wasn't there and you know it's it's a it's a harrowing sequence and it's really hard to watch but that's kind of the point of what the film's trying to make and why that sequence, you know, I would argue actually needs to be there. Because it's 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 shocking to watch and it's uncomfortable to watch. And that's the very point of the film.
5: I don't know if either of you read the novel, because the novel that particular is quite gruesome as well. Like it's mm. really gruesome. So yeah, I can't imagine that yeah, it would work. I agree, Steve.
3: I think I think you're right. I think it's an incredibly powerful visual metaphor for um, the culture that is being uh, depicted in Wake and Fright um, and, as you say, the ugliness. And certainly that, I think, has been one of the the legacies of Wake and Fright in terms of Australian cinema and Australian film culture is just what a powerful moment that was to recognise the ugliness of mateship culture and um, the romanticised outback and all of these kinds of spaces. It was a really powerful alternate view of what were at the time and arguably still today aspects of the Australian culture that we idolised?
4: Yeah, I mean, what's, I think what's really interesting is in 1971, so there's Wake and Fright and there's another film called Stalk by Tim Burstall. And Stalk is an of film, but it's a lovable of film. It's very watchable. It's fun. It's a comedy. That film does hugely well at the Australian box office. It does hugely well at the AFI awards. Like, it wins in all the major categories. And it's interesting that Australians will go and watch lovable Ockers," but if you give it a film like Wake in Fright, which really just shoves it, you know, that whole ochre culture, um, you know, myth around masculinity and drinking and fighting and all of those things, it really pushes that in your face. How audiences backtrack from that, because they don't want to see that, but they want to actually have a bit of a laugh with the occa. Um, so it's not like Australians don't want to see ockers; they just want to see it in a very diluted, kind of fun, jocular sort of way, which I think has sort of continued today.
3: I think so. And reflecting on Wake uh, Walkabout, something that I I rewatched this film over the weekend, and something that I think my perception of it has changed dramatically is the way in which the suicides in that film. Um, Impacted, And I do wonder around thinking around, particularly in Australia at the moment, discussions around family violence and mental health and all of these kinds of things, the fact that particularly the first of the suicides in uh, Walkabout, um, that of the father, uh, was not in the original book and it was something that was put into the film. It suddenly resonated with me in a very different way viewing it in 2021 than it had even when I, you know, perhaps an undergrad um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, was first watching this film. Um, I think there are some really interesting things around the way in which both films uh, depict a very masculinist but troubled masculinist um, image of Australia.
4: Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that, that suicide at the start of the film is just like what on earth am i watching here Hmm. um and yeah it's it's very confronting and hard to watch and it doesn't like any other film probably would have spent 30 or 40 minutes just getting up to that moment and you know but this film doesn't actually go there so it's it's the unanswered that's so fascinating i think about walkabout um, and how people just have to basically survive in moments when they don't actually understand what on earth is going on. Um, You know, like suddenly he's just like trying to gun down his children and it's just, it's crazy. Um, But, you know, I mean, credit to Nicholas rogue he doesn't go to the places where you think he'll actually go, you know, even that relationship um, between, you know, who's referred to in the script as the girl and who's referred to as the aborigine. any other director would have made it more like, you know, The Blue Lagoon, where it becomes this, you know, sensual love story. And that's sort of implied, but it's never it's never kind of pushed in, into that, you know, obvious direction. And I think the suicides as well, I mean, both of them, they're quite shocking because they just seem to come from nowhere. And, you know, that can often be the reality um, of what we're dealing with. So I think there's something very honest and very brutal also about how um, those are being treated. Uh, by rogue in this film.
3: And I think probably one of the things that's worth noting is certainly something that has dated and in the best way possible has dated because of the Indigenous film unit is, I guess, the, the repre- representation of um, Galpalil's character within Walkabout, which is a very dated, very colonial, very British view of indigeneity. Um, which you know certainly has some deeply problematic elements um but again we have this moment where certainly compared to the rest of the the films and the um television work that was happening at the time we did still see indigenous people up on screen in a way that we had not prior to that point so it's sort of it's always this still deeply problematic but a, a launching of a powerful career um, for Galpil, um and a film that's so important because we got to see him up on screen.
4: Yeah, and I mean, and even today, I mean, having an Indigenous character drive the narrative, like his character is the character that literally drives the narrative. You know, they go where he takes them. Um, you know, they, they survive because, you know, he keeps them alive. Um so in a way, it was a very, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right of all the points you make, but it's also a very empowering role for Australians to see an Indigenous character basically driving the narrative and being, you know, the central figure of the narrative. That that was very uncommon and, um, you know, even today, I make mean, you argue that's, that's still very uncommon um, to have that character. You know, he's not, you know, a, another director could have done other things with that character where... Um, that you know, like you know, that sequence at the start could have gone on for longer, and he becomes less important to to the narrative. But I don't, I don't think that's the case in this film, um, you know. And I think Rogue was really trying to tap into something that was quite deep um, that was going on here. So, yeah.
3: Olympia, uh, what are your thoughts about how these films have aged, and do you think we're going to continue watching them for the next fifty years and talking about them? Um, perhaps thinking about their place within the, the research collection as well.
5: Yeah, well, it, it, in, in, that, in light of that, um, I find them interesting to look at as a, a historical moment and in terms of the collection being able to pull out um, all the issues and arguments and situations and films that were coming out at that time, which some of them have not changed, you know. We're still trying to work out what Australian cinema is and we're still having that conversation with COVID and is this Australian film, let's support local films as opposed to international productions and all of that. So that conversation is still not that dissimilar in a way. Um, And it's interesting that you can kind of date it back to that moment in time. And in terms of just uh, the collection itself, being able to look at um, the industry side of things, even the journals like Lumiere, which kind of recorded the making of it and the beginning of that sort of the production, as well as all the variety um, take on it, the international take on it at that time. Um, Interestingly enough, it did say, um, I think variety had The first couple of reviews it has in Variety of Walkabout are actually not that favourable, which is interesting because everyone keeps saying, oh, it was Mm. was well received overseas critically, but if you actually look, there's quite a a number of (laughs) reviews that aren't that way. So just being able to come to the collection and kind of really delve into it in another way um, will be interesting for future researchers, I think,
3: yeah. I think that's a powerful message that these films let us take away when we look at Australian cinema. I mean, we still have this huge cultural cringe when we look at Australian films. And I think it's probably worth thinking about these films and thinking about the fact that, well, 50 years on, we're still talking about them. So maybe the box office at the time isn't the be-all and end-all of what is quality film. We've got these great examples to, to help us remember that. Well, thank you, Steve and Olympia, so much for chatting with me today about Walkabout and Wake in Fright. Uh, For Senses listeners, if you want to add to this conversation, please join us on the Senses of Cinema Facebook page, Instagram or Twitter.
0: As cinemas start to reopen around the world or open and shut and reopen once again, join me talks with film scholar Adrian Danks, who is one of the curators of the Melbourne Cinematheque, a program devoted to showing films in their original medium.
1: Adrian Melbourne Cinetique is one of the oldest film culture organizations in Australia. I wonder if you could give our listeners an idea of how it all got started.
6: Well, it got started in the late 1940s, so the first screening of the cinematics in I think I oh, know, sorry no, I think is in early like March 1949. Um, so that's very early for a film society. I think it's the second oldest film society in the country behind Hobart. Uh, and it initially started at Melbourne University, which is a very significant Um, centre for film and screen culture in the 40s, 50s, 60s in particular. So it came out of the the film society movement and came out of the university, I guess, clubs and societies movement as well. Uh, So it started at that point in time. It was a significant uh, organisation in terms of uh, developing an appreciation of cinema, but also in terms of uh, kind of key people in the film industry both filmmakers and also kind of key people in film culture as well emerged from that organisation, particularly in the 50s and 60s. You know, people like Gil Brearley, but even people like Barry Humphreys uh, was a member of the committee at points in time and and had involvement in certain films that were made, etc. So it's a very significant organisation in that first 20 or so year period. Um, And for example, two of the... Two of the only 17 feature films made in Australia are made by the Melbourne University Film Society in the 1960s. Um, And in the 60s in particular, it had a really very large, very vibrant, uh, very quite combative audience um, and leadership who were often um, kind of a little bit in opposition to things like the Melbourne Film Society um, and even the Film Festival to some degree at that point in time. So it was a very vibrant organisation. in that period it kind of went through a bit of a decline in the in the 1970s but but held on um and was reinvigorated in the early 1980s and in fact 1984 when it moved actually to rmit whereas where where, where i am currently employed um and became the melbourne cinematic at that point in time and it's probably mostly just grown over that period through various collaborations with organizations like the australian film institute where for a period it actually became an organisation that was syndicated throughout Australia or in many places throughout Australia, that's, that's fallen away because those kind of circuits don't exist really anymore. The Australian Film Institute don't do those kind of things anymore either. And it's mainly worked through a collaboration with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image for the last 20 or so years. Um, but it's still very much a volunteer-run organisation, very professional on one level, but run by people who don't get paid for doing it and do it purely for the love of cinema. Um, So, I mean, its focus is really, I guess, you know, its key core constituency as cinephiles, but it has a much broader audience to that as well.
1: As we speak, we're in the middle of yet another lockdown here in Melbourne, Australia. So if we want to watch films, we're now dependent on our own resources, whether that be streaming or DVD, or perhaps a few of us might have some other media floating around. I wonder how that gives a fresh perspective on Melbourne Cinematech's commitment to showing films in their original medium.
6: Well, and it depends what you mean by original medium, but certainly in a, in a cinema context, because, of course, increasingly we're, we're needing to show things on you know new restorations on DCP, et cetera, so not not purely on 35mm, although we still do show quite a significant percentage of our films in that format. Uh, but that communal experience of watching it together in, in a good, large cinema with excellent projection and sound, et cetera, I think there's a real longing for that. I mean, obviously there's a bit of trepidation as well about coming back to spaces like that. And that has affected audiences when we have been able to screen. But at the same time, we get a very good sense that a key thing that people want to do is just to come out and share the experience with others uh, and to see things in in a way that's that transforms the film in a way that watching it at home does not. Where Watching films at home is largely an everyday experience. Um, I mean, you can set up conditions which kind of play around with that a little bit, I guess. Uh, whereas coming to the Cinematheque is much more of an event and much more of a communal activity. So I think it's absolutely essential and will be absolutely essential going forward. Also, not just about the pandemic, but in relationship to a broader shift to things like streaming uh, away from watching films communally or in cinemas. Um, and the Cinematheque as well also has quite a lot of, you know... it. It obviously works with of cinema, cinema to produce articles for each week. There's a, there's a real sense of community and discussion that occurs between people who are coming from week to week as well. And that's something, yes, you can do a little bit of online, and we do as well, of course, in certain form, you know, um, particular forums like Facebook and, and other places as well. But nothing replaces that. And that's the core business of and activity of something like the Cinematheque. Without that, I'm not sure that it could really exist or survive.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about um, Cinematheque as a place where, you know, cinephiles come, film buffs, also film scholars and historians, you know, that there's that broad uh, film culture there that's being brought in. But I sort of feel personally like the curation uh, that you get at Cinematheque and also the annotations that get published um, and provided for each of the films, it kind kind of comes as a relief in a saturated screen culture. Um, you know there's this idea that it's almost it's easy to be almost overwhelmed by the amount of streaming material that we have, and you know yes you get these algorithms that suggest things to you, but it's that kind of choice fatigue. You know I I want someone to guide me through that. Now, it's interesting to think about those annotations in that context,
6: and even the program itself in those contexts as well. I mean I think there is a real place for absolutely curated content and curated guidance through this morass of film of screen culture, which at one level we've never had it so good, of course, uh, in some respects. But in other respects, but I find this, I mean, I've got thousands of things on hard drives and other things. I make lists of films that I, I want to watch that are on one streaming service or another. How many of them do I ever watch? Almost <laughs> none, to be honest. So making you do this, because I think one of the problems you can have also with... Um, algorithms in particular in streaming is that it can steer you in very quite like a narrow groove or relatively narrow groove through things and that's the nature of algorithms that's how they actually work so we definitely don't work by algorithms unless the curators themselves are kind of algorithms which they kind of are but I guess quite idiosyncratic ones so it's not purely based on our taste but taste is pretty significant I think in terms of and we've got quite a varied um, curatorial group as well, so we have you know, different tastes, different opinions, different uh, pleasures in some respects that they have with films too. So, um, so absolutely, I, I think that that um, curatorial or curated experience is. Something that people are definitely looking for, or if they're not actually looking for it, when they find it, they go, "Oh yeah, I was looking for that actually." <laughs> it's um, you know, it's not always something you know you're looking for, but I think you are. I mean, I think algorithms are a form of curation, of course, as well, and so sometimes they can be quite helpful, but. Uh, this is probably something where people go, oh, I wasn't expecting that was going to be at like the Cinematheque and I've never seen a film by that filmmaker. or I don't like that filmmaker but, uh, so far, but maybe I should try again because the Cinematheque's programmed it. Um, and so I think they're all key factors in how the Cinematheque works and how it attracts quite a wide variety, like quite like quite a disparate audience. Um, we have a core group, obviously, of cinephiles and, and film buffs, but we have students, we have people from... Very varied kind of demographic in terms of particularly age age group. So much younger age group in the early twenties to people have been coming to the Cinematheque since 1960 something (laughs) when it was the Melbourne University Film Society, and we do have some of those, and that's great as well. So to be able to speak to all those people does say something. We must be doing something right, Um, and something a little I'd say quite unique in the common in the current climate.
1: Um, So, obviously, unfortunately, the program on Gillian Armstrong's films had to be postponed due to a new COVID lockdown. Um, My Brilliant Career features on that. It's from 1979, which obviously occurred at the height of Australian New Wave. Uh, And as Gabrielle O'Brien points out in her annotation for the film, it's been called um, Australia's first feminist feature film. It's the most famous of her films in the program of her works but I confess I've never seen it on the big screen and I'm suspecting that there's a whole generation out there who are unfamiliar with it at all.
6: There probably is. I mean, it's it's quite likely a film they've... I mean, there are some films people have never heard of but if you have any familiarity with Australian cinema it is probably a film that you at least have heard of or seen clips of even if you've never actually seen the film. I'll confess I've never seen it on a big screen either which is a pretty big confession. Um, I have seen the film, though, of course, and I have told it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I've and, seen it, but yeah. just
1: never on that big screen And it's, a, wonder, and
6: it's a wonderful film, and um, but I haven't seen it in that context either. So, yes, there will be people out there who haven't seen it or who aren't that aware of Gillian Armstrong as a filmmaker and her significance in the context of not just Australian cinema but world cinema. Um, I would have to say with Gillian Armstrong, a season devoted to her work celebrating her career... I think you you have to show my brilliant career. I'd say probably every other film you don't have to show any of them necessarily, even though there are ones that you probably should show. But that's a film that you, you can't avoid, and neither should you because it's a film that stands up extraordinarily well um, and has a remarkable central performance by by Judy Davis. But it's I mean it's a significant. Obviously, it's a deeply significant film in terms of the creative control that women had on that film. Uh, I mean, there are precedents a little bit for it that preceded in, in the Australian film revival of the 1970s where you know f- there are certain women who were producers and writers, etc. But having all of the key kind of roles taken up by women is quite remarkable. And really, you have to go back to the silent era or the very early sound era to find anything like an equivalent in Australian cinema. So that's a program we've been wanting to do for quite some time. Um, We were hoping to get Gillian down here for the screenings, but plainly, well, that still could happen because we don't know when the season's going to actually end up occurring at some point uh, because we're currently in lockdown, of course. But, um, you know, and that mix that we do of Australian and international cinema is an absolutely essential part of what the program's uh, aiming to present.
1: So um, the programs are predominantly organized around either a central director or actor, but they're not necessarily their best known work, as you mentioned with Gillian Armstrong. It's sort of a a mix of, of known ones and perhaps some rarer finds. And I guess I wondered, is that a pragmatic issue around sourcing available prints or good quality prints? Or is it also a curatorial decision around showcasing rare and forgotten film histories?
6: That's a... Oh, well, it's not, it's an easy question to answer, but there's not a simple answer to it. Um, it's a combination of both. So, obviously, there are pragmatic issues around getting access to prints that we're able to show, particularly on 35mm, but also digital as well, and good quality prints, if we possibly can, as well. So that's a, that is a significant factor, which can often mean that some films that we'd like to screen, we can't screen in a program. But... More importantly, in terms of a curatorial um, philosophy, uh, the mixing together of well-known and lesser-known work, particularly in one-night screenings, we will often run the film that we know people have probably heard of and are probably more likely to come to. Because, yes, even though we're a not-for-profit organisation, we do need to think about audiences, and we do need to make money uh, to to keep going, because we rely almost predominantly on, with a bit of funding from here and there, on... Uh, memberships for uh, like tickets to, to actually, you know, make a profit or not a profit, just break even. Um, so, um, so it's a combination. So we're obviously trying to show films that people, we think more people might want to come to see, but we can pair that with a film that is probably less known by a filmmaker or an actor. And often it's a choice we've made based on not just what's available, obviously occasionally that's something you have to do because it might be a very small group of films that you can possibly draw from. But mostly it's like a film that we either really wanted to see and no one's been able to see, or one that one of us or all of us have seen and particularly like and we think we really want to profile in this particular season. Or we decide to just focus on a particular part of a filmmaker or actor's career, or a particular genre, etc. So it, it, there's a whole range of factors that come into that. I, I mean, increasingly, we've also started to think about this, in know, might be a bit dangerous, but a, a longer form sense of, we've got six films we can show. Maybe it's a filmmaker that's made 50. That's not very many of their films. And we think, well, we can profile a certain number now, and maybe in a few years down the track, we can run a follow-up season of other works. Or we also think about, you know, films obviously have many people that put them together. and So we might be thinking of doing a season devoted to a particular actor a few years down the track, and we're looking at the director uh, this year. We might think, well, let's save that one for when we're going to screen that season a few, a few years down the track. So all of those factors come in, but yes, the... There is an educative element of the Cinematheque. It's not a it's not a pedagogical exercise, <laughs> obviously, uh, but there is an element of trying to open open cinema up to uh, to audiences, to, to new members, to old members, etc.
1: Adrian Danks, one of the curators of Melbourne Cinematheque, you can find their program online for when we come back out of lockdown, but also on Senses of Cinema, you can find the annotations to their films. Thanks, Adrian.
6: Thanks,
0: Jamie. Each episode, we feature an audio postcard from writers, filmmakers, or curators across the globe. This month, our postcard is from Michelle Carey. Michelle is a Census of Cinema editor, a film programmer for the International Film Festival of Rotterdam, and program advisor to the New York Film Festival. She brings us a postcard from Paris as cinemas begin to reopen once more. Hi,
7: it's Michelle Carey here. I am... The editor for film festivals at Senses of Cinema and uh, sending everyone uh, a little postcard or podcard I guess um, from Paris. Um, I don't live here but I'm, I'm here I've been here for four weeks um, for work purposes um, watching lots of films uh, for a film festival and when I arrived here Uh, I hadn't been here for many years, um, but I I couldn't believe how how the city looked uh, under complete lockdown with uh, a curfew kicking in at 7pm every day, so everything was shut, everyone's walking around with masks, it was not the Paris I recognised, but thankfully things are starting to open up again. Um, as of last week, uh, the curfew's gone back till 9pm, um, you're allowed to sit outside on the terraces, and I guess most pertinent for us here is that the cinemas have reopened and the museums have reopened, um, and so that's completely changed how the city looks and feels, um. So, on the first day, the cinemas reopen. Uh, they, they've been closed about six months, so it's a really big deal. And uh, everyone's come back in hordes to the cinema. The, the numbers have been really huge. Uh, in terms of what's on release, um, from what I can tell, it's mainly a lot of uh, French comedies, feel-good things. Um, Thomas winterberg 's uh, Another Round, which is called Drunk, here is in release. Um, yeah and of course everyone's gearing up for the Cannes Film Festival which uh, is happening in about six weeks so that's very exciting um, so I don't know if you can hear in the background but it's it's I'm walking in the rain it's it's very it's quite beautiful it's a it's a lovely rainy spring day here in Paris I'm just outside the uh, Fondation Cartier and I've just seen, uh, I I, I went there to see um, an exhibition of the work of uh, uh, Advasa Palashian who's a really incredible filmmaker from Armenia. Uh, He's in his 80s now and he started making films in the early 60s. He only made about nine films between 1964 and 1993 and it was sort of thought that he wasn't going to make films again and he's he's just come back with this new film called nature nature i guess um which is a commission by the fondation Cartier in paris and there's a km in karlsruhe in germany So it's quite an incredible film. It's very much in keeping with his his cinema, which um, is largely comprised of uh, archival footage and and documentary footage that he um, uh, shoots himself. Uh, So this film is uh, black and white, like his other films. And um, it's almost entirely devoid of, of people. And there's certainly no voices or voiceover or anything like this. It's uh, really just um, a a 60-minute montage of some of the most incredible scenes of nature you'll ever see. Um, Starting off very calm and then uh, really moving into some very intense disaster scenes uh, from all over the world that that he's basically collected off the internet the past 15 years and assembled into this... um, Incredibly moving um, video essay, I guess, uh, come disaster thriller. <laughs> uh, it's a very intense experience. He uses music very beautifully as well um, classical cool music and um, a lot of natural ambient sounds. Um, so that's called Nature, and um, I hope it comes to Australia at some point. And yeah, apart from that, um, Yeah, we're all just gearing up to see what Khan brings in in the world of cinema and and how that's going to play out the rest of the year. But, uh, look, it's very nice being in Paris in uh, spring or or summer, I guess we are now, um, when there are no tourists. Um, (laughs) So, um, I hope you've enjoyed my little uh, podcast from Paris. And... um, I'll I'll send another one from somewhere else sometime soon.
3: As usual, each month, your hosts share with you a highlight of something we've watched over the last month. Whether it's a film, television show or some other kind of screen media that has caught our attention, we share what has resonated with us so that you can hear about it and perhaps check it out as well. So, join me. What are your recommendations for May? so this month i'm going to recommend people go back
1: and have a look at an american science fiction television program called counterpart this was first broadcast on the stars network in the us and on sbs here in australia Uh, it won an emmy for its title sequence so the show revolves around howard silk played by jk simmons who won an oscar for his performance in damien chazelle's Whiplash. In counterpart, he's a low-key office worker for the UN who doesn't actually understand what he does for a living. He's working at a checkpoint between two parallel Earths. Although initially identical, these two worlds start to diverge most dramatically when one of them suffers through a pandemic. And this was written before our current COVID crisis. Um, So that might make some viewers want to steer clear of it. Other people may want to just delve right into that kind of um, pandemic experience. As Silk meets his counterpart from the parallel world, it raises questions about identity. Why are we the way that we are? What events or decisions might turn us into radically different people? So that is Counterpart on The Stars Network. Janice, what have you been watching?
2: Well, this recommendation, I reckon a lot of people are probably not going to follow it up, but I really wanted to talk about it. Um, So recently I watched a film that's streaming uh, on Shudder which is called Violation. and was released in 2020 and directed by Madeline Sims-Fewer and Dusty Mantinelli. Now, you might guess from a title such as Violation that this film actually falls into the revenge genre of film, specifically the rape revenge genre. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because in the past month, I think, or at least the past six weeks, I know that The Handmaid's Tale, the more recent Uh, version of the season of The Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale has premiered and once again there's been a lot of discussion about how things like sexual violence are depicted on television on cinema screens and quite often when this discussion happens I see a lot of very common talking points that have come up again and again over the years such as you know is it okay should we be doing this how much should we show And often what is missed in all of this is that when this very dark and confronting issue is depicted on screen, quite often the people behind those representations might actually be survivors, or people who have experienced this kind of violence in their own lives. And the reason why I've picked Violation is that the two directors who have made this movie Are themselves people who have experienced this kind of thing in their lives and they wanted to put together a revenge movie from the perspective of someone who's actually experienced this now this film it actually was not submitted to the Australian classification board so it's streaming on Shutter without a classification and the kind of theory around the around the network is that look they kind of knew that it would not be released with a classification in australia because it is that confronting however if you are a person who is interested in this genre or interested in this issue and i know that there are some people out there who are and who are interested in how media engages with this sort of thing i would highly recommend looking at it because it's a really confronting but also interesting innovative depiction of what it means to actually experience this sort of thing It's made from a woman's point of view. It's always focused on the woman's point of view in the story. So it's actually about two sisters. One of them goes to visit the other in her holiday cabin in the woods. So very kind of classic horror film setup. And then things unfold in a certain way. I'm not going to give away too much about the plot, but if this is something that you're interested in and you're keen on seeing a new perspective on this issue, and you're kind of tired of a lot of the old debates around how to depict this, then I'd definitely recommend this movie. So, Violation, streaming on Shudder, definitely proceed with caution, but for those who are interested, definitely worth the time.
3: Thanks, Janice. Uh, My recommendation uh, for this month is another film that touches on family violence and um, violence against women, um, but in a far lighter touch. Um, is an Australian film called The Dry. And this came out uh, in cinemas in Australia earlier this year, but has just dropped onto Amazon Prime around the world. And this is a film directed by Robert Connolly and based on a book uh, by Jane Harper from 2016 of the same name. And it tells a story of... A Big city policeman, um, played by Eric Banner, who returns to uh Kirawara, his um childhood hometown, uh, after the death of his friend um from his childhood, who has apparently um killed himself and his family in a murder suicide, but uh, unsurprisingly, as Banner returns home to support his friend's parents and dig a little bit deeper into what. Uh, Has happened, Uh, various tensions from both his childhood when he was accused of killing a female friend uh, resurface, and questions arise around what really led to the death of his friend and his family. Um, This is a kind of dual murder mystery that plays out, um, both a historic crime of who killed um, the girl back uh, when he was a child as well as what really happened with the death of his friend, Um, The stories intersect and in that very classic Australian style, uh, the different tensions of small town life come to the surface and play out um, as different tensions are revealed. Now, this is a film that I I really enjoyed watching and I highly recommend. It is that Australian uh, thriller, drama, mystery played out incredibly well. Saying that, though, I also have a couple of problems with this film. Um, This is a film that is told incredibly from a male perspective. Um, Unlike the book that it's based on, the women are sidelined and their perspectives quietened. So even though this is a film about the death predominantly of women, we really don't hear very much from the women in the stories. It's very much told from Banner's perspective um, and very much uh, a psychological look at the sort of tensions that come up around small-town life, around unresolved trauma um, and the way in which that plays out against um, the Australian backdrop. So a really enjoyable and fascinating film, even if it has its uh, pitfalls. Uh, So I recommend The Dry Now Screaming on Amazon Prime.
0: The Senses of Cinema podcast is recorded in Melbourne with production and technical assistance by Georgia Imfeld and our theme tune is by Asher Pope. Thanks to all of our guests and contributors. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks' time.